got kicked out of Noah's Ark. Stuck my teeth with one bad remark. There's two of everything. One of me. As the rain came tumbling down, I held my breath and I stood my ground. And I watched that ship go sailing out to sea. Take it back, take it back. Oh no, you can't say that. All of my friends are not dead or in jail. Rock and for stone, the black wind still moans. Sweet revenge, sweet revenge will prevail. Caught an aisle seat on a plane. Caught an aisle seat on a plane. Drove an English teacher half insane. Making up jokes about bicycle spokes and red balloons. So I called up my local DJ. He didn't have a lot to say. And the radio plays all my favorite tunes. Take it back. Take it back. Oh no, you can't say that. All of my friends are not dead. Or in jail, through rock and through stone, the black wind still moans. Sweet revenge, sweet revenge will prevail. The white meat is on the run, and the dark meat is far too done. And the milkman left me a note yesterday. Get out of this town by noon. They're coming on way too soon. And beside that, we never liked you anyway. Take it back. Take it back. Oh, no, you can't say that. All of my friends are not dead or in jail. Through rock and through stone, the black wind still moans. Sweet revenge, sweet revenge. Will prevail, sweet revenge, sweet revenge will prevail without fail. Ah, damn it, of course the volume is low. Kill me with a fucking rifle, fucking hell. Shut up. You know what, um... Is this better? I have a microphone. Shut up. Okay. The thing is, I don't want to hold it. So I got a problem here because this is the only microphone I have. It doesn't have a stand. Let me see if I can jerry-rig something. Shit. That's connected. Fuck. I don't know. I don't know. Is that all right? Can you hear that? I had a lav mic. Uh, and that seemed to work okay. I don't know what happened with the, I just stopped using it. Maybe I didn't I don't think I lost it. I don't know. Maybe it would be better. Okay, now I have an insane angle. So that's not great. Let's see if I can get this to be less of a crazy angle. I'll stop doing these, guys. God damn it. This is driving me crazy. All right. So I'm done with the crazy angle. 
I just want to be able to feel like I'm being heard. And all I have is what other people tell me to do. So this is a setup that Chris walked me through. He told me how to set up the settings in the software, and I did that. And beyond that, I don't have any other uh, abilities. I never know who to believe because people say it's fine, but then I see later people are like, no, this was serious. People couldn't hear it. And so I'm like, fuck, what did I do? Am I just like listening to who I want? All right, now I have no idea what to talk about. Just got totally blanked out by that, which is probably good. Clear the squeegee, the windshield. It is interesting to say, look at the Afghanistan uh, uh, withdrawal, considering that you know the one thing we know about Biden is that he is he is a puppet, he is a a senile, declining man whose ability to assert control over a uh, administration staffed with Democratic lifers who pro- who pulled him up to use as a as a necessary uh vehicle for beating bernie uh he's still got some ability to assert independence cuz it really does not seem like this invasion this uh withdrawal was something that his people wanted him to do now of course that could all just be stuff they say after the fact to cover their own asses cuz you know he's the old Codger, and maybe that is it. Maybe he is the one who takes it because why not let, why not have him take this? There's nobody committed to Biden. He has no long-term investment with the party because like, he doesn't really have a network outside himself, and he's going to be dead soon. So he can be the sin eater for it. He can be the sin eater for the whole war on terror because he is a scarecrow. He is the Judas goat. But then again, that does mean he's going to uh, lose his popularity, right? I don't know. It's weird. I mean, he's still alive at all is still kind of amazing to me. I'll admit that I was one of those people who thought that they were going to swap out Cuomo for him at the convention just because it didn't seem like he could make it through a whole general election. And then during those, at least a couple of those debates with Trump, he looked genuinely adrift. He looked genuinely uh, at sea and unable. Like you look at him, he would try to answer a question. Like because Trump would get a question. And he would, of course, just ramble on with gibberish, but he would push through. Like whatever crazy uh, stream of consciousness connection he made to the question that he decides to riff on, which has nothing to do with the actual content, of course, at least it's like a coherent story. Biden would start responding to Trump and he would get ahead of steam along a, a, a point and then he would just take a breath and look around, and you could tell that he didn't know what he'd been saying, and then he would have to try to find something close to it to end with.
So that was, you know, eight months ago. And he has looked very checked out at a lot of the more recent uh, public appearances. And so that makes you wonder, did he actually insist on leaving Afghanistan? Was it him asserting his prerogative as a guy who had gone to the White House as vice president, as the foreign policy guy, as the experienced guy in the Obama White House, and who was the one who told Obama, get out, don't listen to the generals. The generals are full of shit. They're lying to you. They say 40,000, that won't be enough, no matter what happens. And fucking Obama did the perfect emblematic Obama thing of saying, okay, you're saying we need to, I wanted to get out and I promised to get out. You're saying we can get uh, 40,000, we can stabilize things with 40,000 more, but that's politically infeasible. That's too much the opposite of what I uh, had promised. I know we'll do 20,000. We'll do 20,000 troops, which you are even saying from your incredibly optimistic uh, bullshit uh, averages is half as much as you would need. And Biden was the only guy in the White House who said, point blank, just get out, take the hit. It's not going to get any better over time. And he was right. And maybe this is his assertion. You know, he's back. He got there after an entire lifetime of doing things like carrying water for Obama with no real stake in the administration. Now he's going to actually get to do something because foreign policy is the president's prerogative in a way that domestic policy is not. So he can't pull out. And you can say that Trump did make withdrawal within his term basically uh, inevitable because of the the momentum generated by the the treaty he'd made with the Taliban and the fact that the Taliban had, because of that and other reasons, made so many advancements in the countryside in the last three years that basically got ignored by the media and lied about by the generals. And that's the real context for this quick collapse. But it seemed like the uh, the MO of the deep state and the blob was very much accepting the terminal decline of Afghanistan but playing for uh, the moment, keeping them there as long as we could afford it. And since there is no political pressure to end the war in Afghanistan because there is no, uh, there is no organization that can catch anti-war sentiment because the two parties are in lockstep on occupation. So they can keep going as long as the checks clear and the checks keep clearing. So – they would say, sure, we have to leave, but we'll just keep talking about standing up the Afghans, securing the peace, all the bullshit that they've been talking about for the last 10 years that was never being prepared for, that was never being prepared for. They said, we need to do X, Y, and Z, and then those things did not get done. Instead, they just cycled money back to Northern Virginia from the Pentagon. The money just went from the Pentagon routed through Afghanistan and came back to Northern Virginia, like 90% of the money we spent there. We didn't build any durable, forget fucking physical infrastructure, social infrastructure. We just let warlords uh, traffic heroin for us. So it was going to take a politician who did not give a fuck. It would have to take someone in YOLO mode to actually pull the, pull the trigger, which is why you know that Trump is at the end of the day a bitch uh, and not based. And if you think he is, it just proves what a pussy you are, that you look at this guy who at every critical moment buckled when the uh, establishment told him to, that, that did what was expected of him. Uh, as a regular politician, even though he hated these people and he knew that he couldn't trust them. How come every time he would fire somebody and then afterwards he'd say he was never good and never liked him, and yet you did what they told him he told them to do? On Syria, on Afghanistan, everywhere, domestically. He did what they wanted, up to and including stepping down from the White House instead of fucking trying to actually do the coup that, uh, you know, the people who really thought he was based was thinking he was uh, up going to uh, uh, 
uh, go for and what the liberals now think he went for. They told him to leave and he left. Uh, and he was clearly preparing a, a withdrawal from Afghanistan as a populist uh, uh, agenda item going into the election. He thought, I am, I'm a bread and circuses guy. I get people on my side by doing what I know they want me to do in big, bold ways. That's why I pushed for the wall so hard because it was a tangible thing that you could point to that was, I did this. Similarly, getting out of Afghanistan satisfied that sort of nativist, anti-imperialist thing that has existed in America ever since pitchfork Ben Tillman uh, protested the annexation of the Philippines because of his horror at the prospect of uh, of Asians running around uh, the, the Senate representing new American states. So he was going to try to do it, and he made a lot of progress. He made a, he made a deal with the Taliban. They were going to pull the trigger, and then he didn't, and he didn't. And I, I don't know if there's any record of this yet, but I'd be willing to bet that if we ever find out the conversations that went on, to prevent him from pulling the trigger on a pre-election, because he's a showman, last fucking flight out of Kabul right before the election. Hey, look what I did for you people. And they told him that'll be a disaster. And uh, he said, oh, no, I'll look like a loser. Never mind. Biden, they did the same thing to him. And he said, fuck you. Who cares? Partially because he just got elected, whereas dumbass Trump was waiting to the last minute to do this thing. And yeah, when we left, it would have been like this no matter what. Of course, Trump now gets to pretend if I had done it, it would have worked. It would have been great and there wouldn't have been any problem, which is hilarious. Uh, The fact is they probably just would have kept scaring him away from it until he left office. But especially before the election, they said, hey, instead of you're going to get – instead of getting this big uh, victory for the people, you're going to get this this, – spectacular military debacle that's going to make you look like a loser. And Biden, as we talked about on the show yesterday, doesn't give a shit about lose, being a loser. He, he embraces that. That's He loses on behalf of America. And then America rewards him with more power. Biden is causing suffering, but he is suffering with us. Remember when Clinton said, I feel your pain? That was his pitch in 92, and that was the Democratic pitch. That's been the Democratic pitch since the neoliberal turn. When they can no longer promise any kind of uh, improvement in conditions, they cannot really promise anything that will improve people's conditions in a way that they can feel confident they'll be able to enact and therefore worth putting out there as a promise. They have to just hurt on your behalf. To, to, to feel the pain with you. And Clinton said it, and he was very charismatic, but Biden fucking lives it. Biden literally feels pain in a way that slick lit Willie never did. Which fits because Liberalism in terminal decline, which is what we're seeing now, expressed in the two-party system and our political conflict, is a conflict between uh, sadists and masochists at the Sallow Party. Like we are, we are in the terminal freefall of this system, uh, and those who are dedicated to maintaining it, like in, intellectually uh, and existentially in, uh, invested in maintaining the structure of capitalism as it exists so that they can main their, maintain their positions within it, their positions of wealth, influence, self-actualization, identity, deep shit, and stuff that they consciously and unconsciously connect to the presiding capitalist system. Now, doing so in conditions of planetary uh, collapse and, and, uh, and resource crisis the kind that come at the end of any empire, any system of, uh, of extraction uh, built around castes and built around uh, exploiters and exploited, will find itself 
uh, at a point where it is no longer – the structures that were created under one ecological conditions can no longer function given new ecological conditions. There, and now that doesn't mean that humanity or those civilizations were ever doomed. What doomed them is the incapacity of the systems to adapt because they were fully in the hands of people who to one way or another were committed to the system as it existed, which means they could never uh, never correctly identify any problem or address it democratically. They could only displace their uh, – their impotence because if anybody moves to undermine the thing, they get got and replaced by somebody more committed to their position than to addressing the problems. It it filters out at the keyest points of power, any commitment to a thing outside of capitalism, like previous systems. This is true of the slave owners of the South. It's true of feudal Lords of Europe it's true of the uh, the empires uh, of uh, of ancient of the ancient world and uh, and Africa and fucking the Americas and, and Southeast Asia, your Mughals and such. Power persists until the conditions that allow it to persist uh, no longer obtain, either because of an exogenous ecological shock when the system creates uh, – the system is no longer able to uh, function given the inputs it's receiving from the environment, which happens over time because you're no longer – once you've created a structure that is built with an interface with the world around you, it is no longer, uh, after it gets going, referring outside of the structures that have been created. So no social order that is based on exploitation is ever acting in crisis or uh, uh, in moments of flourishing on behalf of the entire social order. They're acting on behalf of the one half that rules it, which means they are disconnected from the actual conditions that are being created by the system of exploitation that they have arranged, the technological order that they have constructed. And there's two things, as I said, there's, there's two things that can interrupt. One, exogenously. Two, an emergent class from within rising to challenge for power. Now, the thing about that is, is that traditionally, the form that that internal uh, challenge to the ossified system comes in is some sort of alliance between the lower half of the ruling class, the exploiters, and some percentage of the exploited class. And the thing is, though, is that throughout all of human history, because of the relative lack of social organization that occurs in the rural idiocy of peasant existence, which is where the people who actually do the work live. Once you get a point of social crisis, all of the social uh, organization, effective like force multipliers of numbers and uh, uh, structures that allow for deliberation and action at a coordinated level are hoarded among the ruling class. And that exploited class uh, misery is only channeled effectively by this upper class formation. And what Marx, the, the moment that Marx was writing is a moment when emerging onto the scene from history is this new thing, a new class that had never previously existed. This is a class of people who are as crucial to the, produ- the reproduction of the system through their labor uh, as the a- agricultural laborers of slave societies or feudal societies were. They, they were not 
making food, the process of food make manu- uh, of, of food production was being technologically intensified. What they were doing is building the machines that allowed for technological intensification to continue. And in doing that, emerging from their new social relations, which are closer to the social relations of an urban bourgeois than they are to a rural peasant, you create a new worker, a new exploited person who is not just an exploited person, but who is able to perceive themselves as part of an exploited class. Now, the lower up the roller, the lower bourgeois, the smaller bourgeois, when they get alienated and they begin to understand themselves as, oh, I am being subject to capitalism. I am not uh, uh, benefiting from it, either because of lowering uh, economic conditions or cultural disruption and alienation. They answer the question through the lens of the middle class. So they're not saying, oh, I'm, 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 I'm uh, suffering as a member of a, a class that is exploited because they imagine themselves as the exploiters. They do not imagine themselves as exploited through their labor because their labor is not alienated the same way that a worker's labor is. It is uh, it's mixed. And they, therefore, as individuals, are more likely to identify with capital than with labor subjectively because there is no – class experience to organize them towards a shared understanding of what middle class means. Like that's, it's not that the working class is smarter or that their oppression itself, the misery they feel, gives them some extra insight. What it is is, is that they are living conditions of exploitation together that are shared as opposed to the exploitation felt by a middle class person, which is totally individuated. A small the, – the, uh, the, uh, the people who own uh, small businesses or small industries, they do not work in a shared condition of exploitation. They live in a, and work in a shared uh, uh, environment of domination. And like your urban, uh, your urban intellect, your urban intelligentsia, their labor isn't alienated. They're basically living in this post scarcity world, for Christ's sake. But they're still alienated by the system because they see how much misery is created by it and they see how much of value is destroyed by it every day. And how do they express themselves? Through things like nationalism, the lens of the nation, the idea that there is a national interest that we, and, and, and individual identity that I can use to make sense of the world and to, and to fight for and that this will defeat the, the alienation of this system, which I can't identify as being capitalism because I benefit from capitalism. But some of those alienated urban middle-class people, especially the intelligentsia, they're also going to recognize, oh, shit, there's uh, this economic thing here. Yes, I benefit from it, but it's bad. Or, or rather, it now has within it the capacity to organize social goods collectively, to truly transcend this bifurcated social order. Because the technologies that we've created to exploit can now be collective, collectively held. Because we can, for the first time as humans, imagine ourselves as part of one group that could command power over a technological, sophisticated civilization. And the working class, because their group is the most numerous and because its interests cannot be uh, – Divided against itself, the way the interests of the rulers can always be used against uh, workers in any situation where they're allied in a specific instance, that they will therefore become the class that abolishes class. And it begins the way that any of these revolts against the power structure begin as an alliance between the progressive small bourgeois, and the stirring emergent working classes. And what we saw through the 19th century was the emergence of this new powerful bourgeois that used the working class essentially as a stepping stone to power, that directed their 
alienation from this system as they were pulled from the land and turned into proletarians and 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 had their and if they were artisans thrown into proletarian labor from a position of autonomy seeing uh, a real death of the human the human i mean they were being redefined their ability to assert their humanity in the world was being ascribed away from them because they were being thrust into a wage relationship that alienated them from the vast majority of their fucking lives in a way that had never been felt before but in those early stages, you have not yet developed coherent structures of class power that emerge counter-hegemonically from working-class life because it is only in its infancy. And what ends up winning is nationalism. Uh, uh, in, the, in the mantle of the uh, bourgeois classes, which ally temporarily in the 1848 revolutions being the most uh, crucial example of this, uh, nationalism – uh, post-Napoleonic European nationalism, the working class response, to, or I'm sorry, the middle class response to the traumas of capitalism erupts and, and, and seizes the agenda of politics in Europe that define the next fucking century and that cause World War I on the back of an uncoordinated working class movement. But these new nationalists also believe in these liberal nostrums of individual autonomy. The nation is their solution to the problem of how do we come together if we are all individuals with individual rights and, and, the, and, 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 and natural rights, all these enlightenment notions. And the solution is a nation. Now, the solution has to be national or racial as it became later in some places because it cannot be economic. It cannot be about exploiter and exploited because these are emerging within the middle class with an assumption an assumption metaphysical in nature that capitalist uh, – that class exploitation was the, the economic engine of their society, which meant all they could do is find nationalist explanations for the misery that they continue to feel as the system gears up. But then after the fall – after the, the suppression of 48 – you had the moment which Marx was there to witness when working class people started organizing counter-hegemonic institutions, labor unions, and then parties emerging from those unions from the ground up that mirrored the power structures of the states made by these nationalists, made by these triumphant bourgeois nationalists, and able to challenge for control over the state mechanisms of power and technology that these uh, nationalist states had built And that they would be able to uh, challenge for power in a, in a context of crisis. But even this thing, it must be pointed out, is, as it develops, a class alliance between the progressive bourgeois and the workers. It's just that the relationship is flipped. And now the uh, energies of the uh, bourgeois the energies of the progressive bourgeois are being filtered through the structures of a class counter-hegemony and through class institutions, which are led by, which are uh, uh, filled with and commanded by uh, working-class people. They are tailing a working-class movement, as opposed to in the 19th century, in, during the first explosion of this, uh, the working-class movement was tailing the small bourgeois which is why they were betrayed and defeated every time. The July days in France, as always in France, being sort of the textbook example of this. You really could say that like France is the modern country and that France is the the European country where capitalism emerged in a national context for the, for, its, for the longest duration. Capitalism, of course, first emerged in the low, really, really emerged uh, uh, post-Black Death in the low countries. But that colonialism, once it was eventually headquartered after, uh, headquartered especially after the, uh, the, the Seven Years' War, in uh, London was expansionist and imperial. And of course, French 
capitalism began imperially too, but over the course of the 18th century, it lost a huge chunks of its territory. And then over the course of, uh, and, the, and that meant that once uh, it emerges in, once capitalism emerges in France, you have, unlike in Europe, you have, or unlike in the UK, you have capitalist, uh, capitalist um, contradictions intensifying in conditions of crisis and uh, and trauma emerging from this new relationship without a without a a, a significant uh, release valve, without anywhere else to put the energy. So that's where you have, and it, and it, and it happens as it does. You see, uh, the emergence of a re- of of re- revolution in Paris, the 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 Jacobin uh, the Jacobin rule, the Reign of Terror, uh, the fucking reaction, Napoleon, the Restoration, the the 19th, July Monarchy, forty eight to the Paris Commune. You see these like ideal conditions of of the emergence first of bourgeois uh, bourgeois self consciousness emerging on uh, piggybacked on top of uh, of like peasant and early worker uh, a- uh, anger, and then eventually uh, the transition to the social revolution with the Paris Commune, where you have again workers and uh, the bourgeois allied, but where the center of gravity has changed, and therefore the the radicalness of the agenda has changed. And that was the conflict. That was the that was the eschaton that uh, Marx predicted was the final conflict, a final battle between the emergent cultural forces uh, and. And like <clears throat> or, uh, social organizational structures that the working class was be able to create, uh, unions, political parties, then state power against those institutions in the hands broadly of the bourgeois. And we had that war. The 20th century was that war. And the reason that the working class lost is that it never created sufficient power projection. It was stuck in the backwoods developmentally of the world. And that is the thing, is that, like, yes, Marxism is a liberal is an outgrowth of liberalism. Marxism is the, in fact, is the, uh, is the completing of the project of liberalism. Like it is, it is teleologically and eschatologically the, the transcendence of liberalism. It, it recognizes that the liberal subject created by capitalism is the first human being capable of socially organizing production and reintegrating the human race into a homeostatic, ecologically uh, stable relationship with our biome without the cyclical misery of uh, pre-capitalist social formations where we were all separate from one another, exploiting one another, smashing into one another and seeing our social progress destroyed when ecological conditions changed. That was things that were happening without our ability to reckon with them because we were too busy holding the fucking whip. And you can chart history as this movement, as class, as, as social order is defined, once you get civilization and division of labor, you have so society divided by those who 
enjoy surplus and those who uh, uh, produce alienated surplus as like as subjective social experiences. They live their lives working for others or live their lives working from others. And when I say working, I mean doing shit that sucks, doing stuff that's not fun and that is in almost no conditions possible to be made as physically pleasurable. Now, it's not necessarily alienated when it happens in a pre-social order, but it's still not a fun time people want to have. And so alienation, when you have a, a, a social structure where decisions are made hierarchically, there's going to be every incentive at the top of the hierarchy to maximize your distance from stuff that's not fun and sucks. And they are not, and the other people at the end of this uh, uh, transaction, the ones who you are using your control of the technology of the social order to compel to do things, doesn't get a fucking say. Their misery, while it is part of the system and which uh, is an externality that has to be dealt with, just goes off and is unregistered and becomes just one more thing that echoes back and undermines and destroys your project. And so society is defined, as Marx said, by class struggle between an exploiter and an exploited. But as I said, the real conflict, social, the real conflict politically and socially does not occur between exploiter and exploited classes. It occurs within the exploiter class, between people oriented, uh, depending on where they're oriented, uh, to capitalism. Are they direct exploiters of it? Are they slave owners or, uh, or later on factory owners or small business tyrants? Are they uh, college professors who are essentially the people who live a life closest to that imagined by, uh, by Marxism? Like a life of labor that is of the mind and unalienated and, and well compensated. This is, of course, talking about the, that small handful of tenured professors who mo- – are uh, becoming vanishingly rare. It matters if you are uh, somebody who sees themselves as a beneficiary of a national hierarchy of like consumption where you get to consume, even though you feel like you are exploited by work and that your boss sucks, you feel more that you benefit from being an American perhaps. And all these people are pulling in different directions. And that makes up our politics. It's an attempt to try to coordinate this nervous breakdown that cannot express itself coherently or effectively because it cannot address the real conflict. Because we have reached a point at the other end of that of that parabola where we go from a relationship of uh, exploitation between classes carried out by technology over time where cycles of civilization and collapse happen because of unstable ecological conditions underlying them. But the thing that happens is, is over time, there is a buildup of civilizing uh, technologies that allows for the creation of an abstract social subject who can imagine himself part of a human race and have that mean something to them. And also technology that can radically reduce the amount of shitty, unpleasant labor that anyone has to do. And you can bring those things together and, and, and the emergent social forces that Marx, and Marx both recognized and helped call into being uh, were all erupting from that peak moment when we now have – we had something before which was this cycle because the working people could not intervene. It was always just a civil war between the ruling classes that led, ended up with something breaking up and a new ruling group within the previous uh, groups coming up to rule with a different mode of production maybe, but the same process. This is the first moment, the 19th century in the, in the emergence of modern capitalism, where a third social force headquartered in the working class could assert itself coherently and effectively, and challenge for power. And Marx predicted, Marx thought, like the teleology of Marx is that you could tell Marx thought that the workers were going to win. But the thing is, they didn't. 
And so that means we're now on after that war has fought and 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 the working class loses it and we go back to a situation where uh the the political question is one that is fully uh ob- fully uh sealed away from real input from below because now we have a sufficient technological sophistication to rule groups of people who identify as things like Americans, as abstract concepts, like, like members of a racial group, and that that can powerfully motivate them through media, mediated reality, not lived experience, through mediated reality. And so now we're on the other end of that parabola where we are still – now we are once again a society defined entirely by class exploitation, a, social, a political order that is simply uh, a civil war within the ruling elite and an oncoming ecological uh, reassertion uh, or uh, a oncoming uh, disruption of the ecological balance that undergirded the system and that it can't operate without – like that's why the fucking the Ankur civilization of Cambodia had an insanely developed social order and incredible uh, physical infrastructure that uh, in medieval Cambodia that involved, among other things, some of the most impressive systems of water control, canals, locks, uh, and dams, and it ever were any ever created in a pre-modern world, and it was able to distribute water through. Uh, through irrigated uh, – uh, it was able to distribute water to irrigate wa- uh, uh, crop – or irrigate like uh, rice fields and to accommodate for rises and falls in, in river conditions. Uh, like a, it was a perfect machine that could deal with – adapt with any conditional change within a band of assumed responses. That's all you can go for. Like, what, what, if the, what if the water is this high? Well, we do this. What if the water is this high? We do this. What if the water is this high? We do this. And that's how you design it because the water has only ever been here, here, and here. And so you have a structure designed and assuming that the water is always here, here, and here. And if it has been for hundreds of years, why the shit wouldn't you think it would continue that way? But then somewhere else in the world, a little ice age starts. The, the, the wobble of the earth on its fucking uh, axis or... Uh, a burble and some sea ice, and you have conditions that radically change. And instead of it, it, uh, it floods three years in a row, it floods 10 years in a row, or it floods 30 years in a row. And then instead of it being dry for two years in a row, it's dry for 15 or 20 or 30 years in a row. And all these structures are now useless. Now, during that time of crisis, once you realize conditions have changed, you could be able to adapt and keep your civilization going but it would mean redistributing labor. It would mean redistributing shitty labor upwards. And nobody who's making decisions is going to make that decision. And so it collapses. Marx imagined a movement, the fulfillment of liberalism that would allow for the breaking of this cycle. But the thing is, those previous civilizations didn't have the technology to do it. Any, any, so they're always, they're, they're, their revolutions were always, their peasant uprisings were always sort of romantically doomed, always brought about new forms of uh, exploitation because they couldn't not. There was too much shitty work to have to be done. We didn't have the technology to distribute it significantly enough. And too many people were too connected to the land to allow it. Now – and then in the 19th century, all this is thrown up. We're creating liberal subjects. But we're also creating a technology of control that can hypothetically remove the rest of lower classes from the equation. But it takes a massive amount of violence, as all of these things do. They're not smooth. 
Like you can look at the, 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 the monstrous horrors of the 19th and 20th century, imperialism, uh, the world war, culminating in the world war, uh, fascism. These are all parts of that conflict. It's a three-way battle between the old landed ruling class, the, the new urban commercial uh, ruling class, uh, and the, the newly self-aware working class. And it is a three-way war that le- that uh, ends with the merger of a new emer- uh, the emergence of a new synthetic ruling class out of the con- conflict between uh, old and new money, basically. And they rule over this new decline phase where we have the sufficient technology to endeavor to create this sort of fulfilled liberalism. That this this social world that can allow for productive labor and for actual human um, self expression and actualization to commence for the first time, not individually, but for the first time collectively, we can pursue this project and live and create history for the first time. And I really do think that that was possible. I think that the ingredients that existed on earth allowed for that. And I think that that is a fundamental schism that people have to reckon with. Like, where are you on the possible? I think there's another thing to say that it's inevitable. I think that is a relic. That's what the way that the early Christians were like, Jesus is going to come back before I die. I think there's a very similar millenniary yearning in the idea that it's an inevitable victory of the working class. And it's, and it's necessary to get people motivated to do the work, you know, when everything looks so fucking hopeless. But I would say now we have to reckon that we're at a point we're the post-defeat. And so now we are reaching that decline phase of an empire where ecological conditions are undermining the old social orders. Like in America, for instance, the social order that we created after uh, World War II was social conflict diffused through consumption which is that's a great deal to make when you have a uh, essentially infinite input there's no th- even theoretical limit on your consumption in that context but now because of that faulty assumption that 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 presentist fantasy that undermines all of our rational political pursuits we've created conditions that can no longer accommodate that social order and so it's breaking down our faith in this thing is breaking down. Our ability to invest these institutions with meaning is breaking down. So we have a fucking vaccine for a virus, and we cannot use it to uh, reduce the threat of the virus the way that previous uh, uh, pandemics had been uh, tamed. Because through the failure of the institutions that comes from starving them, because the money's got to go elsewhere. The money's got to go to profit because there's not enough to go around anymore because that's we have to we have this new multipolar uh structure so that means we don't have the capacity to get needles into arms of people who want them if they're uninsured or poor or not connected to infrastructure and then there's a huge other chunk of people who because of their deep investment in the tribal bullshit the frantic neurotic St. Vitus dance of culture war between Republicans and Democrats that these fucking delusional petty bourgeois psychos on both sides are fully invested in as an alternative to under, uh, to recognizing the fucking ground falling away beneath their feet, because doing so would mean we can't keep doing the things that keep you fat and sassy. They won't get it because it defines it, – it's against their sense of self, uh, self-conception, their identity, which is all we have. We're fighting to, 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 to protect our tribal identity from the rising tide, and we want our enemy's tribe to be fucking dissolved in it. I know people get mad when you, you talk about tribalism in America, but this, we're talking about a decline phase here. We're talking about a, a capitalism that has fulfilled its historic role and is now staying out its welcome – because it broke the human resistance to it. 
And now we have a exploited class, a global exploited class that is so separated by nation, by na- by geography, nation, by by identity that they cannot organize. And you do have the fact that for many, many years, the center of the colonial empire imperial system benefited at the expense of its periphery, which means people have a, a deep investment beneath their own consciousness uh, in protecting it in a way that they aren't even able to recognize. And that doesn't necessarily determine their political uh, points of view and, and what they're willing to do. It certainly informs it. And those things that it's this lattice work of, of, of alienated uh, mediated cultural identity that override any sense of one as a worker, at least in the center, because we did so much consumption instead of uh, controlling our labor. We ceded our work hours to the boss in exchange for a greater intensity of pleasure that we could experience in our off hours. Uh, and, uh, and now that pleasure comes from feeling like you're in tr- control of your life, feeling like you're doing what you want to do, whatever that means. But part of the reason that capitalism won is because it was able to su- build sufficiently su- sophisticated technological uh, systems of, of mediated uh, reality transmission that you can essentially just, oh, we can just tell them what they want to do. And then they'll just do it. We tell them to do things that, that they spend money on. And then they spend the money on them. It's great. But there has to be things to spend money on. And there has to be more things to spend money on. And there have to be continually more things to spend money on. Because it is a hedonic treadmill. And we've been great at, 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 at uh, innovating. But innovation has slowed as the inputs have changed. And now we're in a situation where, like, look at what we look at what's happened in the last two years to significantly reduce the uh, enjoyment that the average American can have in their life. Uh, the degree to which people have been a- increasingly alienated from this system. Now, again, I'm saying that doesn't have to turn into anti-capitalism or socialism or anything. It's just, hey, this is bullshit, and I don't like it. And the powers that I used to think were invested with meaning are actually lying to me and have no real uh, influence. And their access to treats has been disrupted. Now we've gotten some money. You know, there was some money. There was a, there was a a, 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 a perpetetic spirit, spigot of, of government cash for people to spend things on. But what are you going to spend things on? Half the stuff you want to do is closed or uh, it's just a bummer. Like wearing a mask in the, at, at like Six Flags looks like the most depressing thing on earth. Like it literally is taking away your ability to enjoy the things that used to be what you did instead of feel like uh, you uh, were able to control your life. What have we gotten instead? We have gotten in the last 12 months at least six new cut of the uh, uh, state of the art cutting edge spicy chicken sandwiches from different uh, fast food restaurants. That is the only innovation left in the system. That's the only place where there's any return on investment in giving people something new. Streaming services and chicken sandwiches. That's it. And then everyone has to pretend like, oh, my God, I'm so excited to eat this chicken sandwich because it's something. And I got to admit, I have been looking at a lot of those chicken sandwiches like, I got to try that. I've tried the Burger King one. I tried the Popeye's one. Haven't had the McDonald's one yet. But that's where optimism lies because that's not enough, you know? And 
if there is any emergent, if there's anything, if there's any juice left in the human race that can be coordinated through the commoner's access to existing technological infrastructure, it's going to be as something beyond a worker. It can't. It, it's not going to be worker. That's not going to be the the organizing self-conscious principle. I think we are literally, as I said, tracing the parabola past that. It was real. It was a live ball. But now we're in a post-class world. But it still will emerge specifically from the economically exploited, the most pained. It has to. Because if you're on the good side of the coin of of, uh, global wealth distribution, if you're one of the lucky ones, by and large, barring exceptions, your response to increased misery, increased uh, alienation, uh, increased precarity is going to be expressing your alienation through the cultural levers currently existing to do so. Things like culture war, things like politics through the lens of, of a culture war. You are literally too entranced by this farrago to do otherwise. It can only be the workers who will emerge. But what they will call themselves is something different that I don't know. Because something that was supposed to happen as part of that process of of humans coming together to socially determine uh, socially determine economic activity through democratic means, like as in finding out what people want. Now, democracy does not fucking mean voting. It does not uh, mean two party systems and elections which is why all of the critiques of Cuba from the United States are so hilarious. Like, oh, they don't have a two-party system. Oh, no. It's nothing to do with democracy. Those are, in fact, anti-democratic structures meant to capture questions of democratic legitimacy for the ruling class, to keep all deliberations about what we should do among rulers, people who are self-conscious of themselves as rulers. I mean, you're either part of a political party structure that benefits you, or now you're just a rich person. They're all just fucking millionaires now. Nancy Pelosi's worth like $200 million. It's not about parties at all. It's about people expressing what they want to do and making a deal. Hey, there's X amount of shitty work that sucks. Who's going to do it? Well, instead of just having whoever has, who is most desperate does it whoever is most compelled does it whoever has the gun of the state or the market the same thing does it or we all decide who does it and then maybe we all do a little bit of it or maybe one person does it but they don't do it for very long they spend much more they have they work way less they work and then a bunch of people do it for a little bit of time. How about that? What about that? What about everybody? We don't want to, we don't want to do away completely with the efficiencies of labor, of uh, separation of labor. So in terms of like productive, non-recreational stuff that like has to be done socially important labor, maybe the same people do the, the worst of it, but they do it like three hours a week. And then maybe people who like doing the stuff that's uh, traditionally been rewarded with surplus, yes, hey, yeah, hey, you who get who who's the scribe, you get uh, some 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 papyrus, you get you don't get it, you don't get uh, you got to work as like you know all the time, but that's fine, or you mix it up, 
one way or another, you get to a point where people are willing to make a deal and they feel like they've been fucking consulted and they understand I am doing this for these reasons. It's providing me with this. You are unalienated from a social order the way that humans were when we were hunter-gatherer societies. Everybody knew why they were doing what they were doing, and they were cooperating. If they didn't like it, they fucking said something, and they had to be accommodated because there were insufficient technologies of coercion at that intimate level. And the, the, the post-class dream of, cap, of uh, Marxism, socialism, is that you can recreate that level of social investment, that level of faith in a social project, in a cosmopolitan social milieu that, is, that create that is an a advanced uh, cultural context where you are an individual among individuals pursuing individual desires, but without the context of labor exploitation and alienation. So you can really say it's like Marx's teleology is correct in that at the end of the conflict between capitalism and socialism, you have abolished class. The only question is how have you done it? Socialism sought to abolish class by abolishing exploitation. Uh, it seems like what we have accomplished is abolishing class by abolishing the ability to perceive class, which is, I guess, the liberal nightmare if socialism is the liberal dream. Okay. Hope some of that made sense. Feel like I'm getting somewhere. Bye-bye. Bye, folks.